Please turn in the Word of God this evening to Psalm 68, 68th Psalm. It's good to have Mrs. Mooney in our midst tonight after her labors in Winston-Salem yesterday. As I made mention of that this morning, the ladies had a, a good time. At least my wife and mother-in-law were reporting on having had a good time yesterday. Worth the six hours of driving that's required to drive up to Winston-Salem. But of course, if, you have, if you're surrounded with other ladies, it's, it just flies in, I imagine, all the healthy, encouraging conversation going on. Psalm 68, we were here last week, and I mentioned to you, beloved, that I wanted to take two evenings looking at John Wycliffe and those who followed him, just dealing with some historical matters. We do well to remember important events and people in history and to refresh your memories. When I say John Wycliffe, many of you immediately are familiar, somewhat aware of this man. I mentioned the Lollards who followed him were essentially disciples of Wycliffe. Again, this is not uh, unknown to you. But the Bible encourages us to repeat things, to keep bringing them up, because there are many people today who don't know these names. You say Wycliffe, they say, oh, the Bible translators group. <laughs> but they don't know the man. They don't know why that uh, parachurch ministry is given that name. And that's, that's sad. So let us make sure we're not guilty of hiding uh, ammunition for the Christian life, uh, strengthening truth for the next generation from the next generation. We need to keep going back. And I, I did look, I went on and looked to see, uh, I was, I'm sure Dr. Cairns or someone dealt with Wycliffe before, and uh, at the very least, I, I found one anyway, 1984. So uh, as some of you maybe remember back that far, but I would say most uh, that is not the case. And even if you were here, you don't recall everything. So I, I'll not read Psalm 68 at any length, just looking at the text that really initiated my thoughts in this direction about a week and a half ago, where we read in verse 11, the Lord gave the word, great was the company of those that published it. I gave my arguments last time for such a translation that indicates the bride of Christ going to disseminate what God has given. And there have been many times in history when that has happened in a very particular fashion, and Wycliffe and those he influenced would certainly fit that. So let us pray. Let's give ourselves to prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Just you pray as young Samuel prayed, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And if you do so in humility and earnest desire, even with the frailty and the weakness of the messenger, the Lord is able to 
certainly meet you and meet with you. Lord, we ask that thou wilt help us, help us to utilize the gift of memory and the blessing of being able to record events in the past and to muse over such events with care and consideration in how they may instruct us for our present hour. We live in a time where this is greatly needed, when the people in general need to know their history. We ask that it might please Thee, O God, to give to a new generation an interest in their past and to make a study of those things that help us to live for the glory of our God. We're thankful that Thy Word itself is a, is a perfect example of how history can help. And we often think of the words of Psalm 44, Our fathers have told us what things Thou didst for them. Lord, we glean from Thy Word what Thou didst do. And we're encouraged for our own day to pray and trust the same God they trusted. Tonight, therefore, help us. And as we give consideration to some historical matters, we pray that it may be of help to the church. Build up thy people, strengthen thy flock, and perhaps even deal with those still on the fence who will not commit their lives to Christ. Save them, we pray. So grant the fullness of thy spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Is it possible that you may sow seeds and the harvest will not be seen for years to come? Is it possible that you may sow seeds and never see the harvest in your lifetime? I thought about that many, many times. The fact that our labor may be such that we'll never see the full fruit of what we have given ourselves to. And at times my mind has been drawn in thinking along those lines to John 4, where our Lord Jesus met with the woman at the well, and there was enough knowledge among the Samaritans where she was able to say, we know that Messiah cometh. Now, amidst all the confusion and certainly the deficiency of the instruction that Samaritans had in comparison to what the Jew, Jews have had, still there was enough there that she was able to say, we know Messiah cometh. We know that. And that laid a framework, laid a foundation, laid, as it were, there were seeds sown so that when Christ came, it was not in a vacuum. He was able to speak to her concerning things that then she would respond to. Not only she becomes convinced that she's standing before the very one she's heard of and has been taught to anticipate. And she is so overwhelmed, so overcome, the effect of the gospel gripping her own soul, she runs back into the city to tell everyone, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? So I don't know who sowed those seeds. I don't know to what extent what, what was going on there in her life, but someone told her something as deficient as it may have been, and it brought forth a harvest because not only was she converted, but many others were converted as well. 
The work of John Wycliffe was not quite like that which occurred 150 years later. When we come to this time of the year and we give consideration to the Protestant Reformation, our minds go to the early years of the 1500s, generally speaking. And we think of 1517 and Martin Luther, and we think of the following years that affected other parts of Europe with John Calvin and John Knox and William Tyndale and so on and so forth. But the work of Wycliffe was still to bear tremendous fruit, even though it was 150 years prior to what we officially recognize as the commencement of the Protestant Reformation. One historian, historian writing on the Protestant Reformation in England during, during the 1500s, he notes, quote, late Lollardy provided the early English Protestants with ready and tenacious devotees among the common folk. He goes on to say, from the outset, English Protestantism was shaped by the waning Wycliffeites whom it engulfed. So this historian, fairly modern recent historian, identifies the, the, the remnants of Wycliffe and his work that, again, was there. It was there just ready for a little oxygen, as it were, upon the flame, upon the spark, to, to fan into something far greater than Wycliffe ever saw in his lifetime. Last week, we titled our message simply, A Light Before the Dawn, and this is essentially part two, and I'll give a brief review over the first two points as we considered Wycliffe, and then we'll move into further thoughts for the remainder of our evening here. First, we looked last week at Wycliffe's context. This is important to bear in mind. He is living in the 1300s, and this is a period that is not very pretty. <laughs> it does not bear much resemblance to a happy time to exist by the time Wycliffe was around 30 years of age, the most fatal pandemic recorded in human history was well underway, the bubonic plague, the Black Death. And the numbers are just staggering. It's hard to conceive living through a time when you have 75 to 200 million people dying as a result of this plague, anything from 30 to 60 percent of the entire population of Europe is gone in a few short years. No one, as we said last week, was left untouched. Northern Africa, Europe was utterly destroyed, devastated by this plague. And as I said last time, this was a terrible time to be alive. And it's not just the plague. As I, I indicated last week, there were famines. You read of that time, there was repeated famines happening around that time also. And you, you can't help but make a connection wondering if there is this, this physical chastisement coming from God as a, as a result of the spiritual darkness that has been led by the religious leaders of the day. The spiritual climate is dark. The, the, the bondage of the people is undeniable. What they're living through is destroying nations and devastating souls. And it would appear, at least in part, you can't help but make the connection that only God can read His own activity, that this devastation upon the, the lands, upon the nations, was reflective of a people who had increasingly gone into darkness and superstition and away from the Word of God. As I say, it was a, a horrendous time to be alive, and this is when Wycliffe lives. This is his occasion. He's brought not to a day of prosperity, but to a day of great 
loss and devastation. And he establishes himself as the foremost religious instructor of his day, eventually becoming an advisor to King Edward III. That's his context. We saw also last week his convictions, where he begins to publish various tracts and pamphlets. He begins to deal with various topics and issues of the hour, begins to put forth into the world his controversial opinions as he understood them by the instruction and enlightenment of God's Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to his own soul. In taking various positions, he was opposing the official positions of the Roman Catholic Church, of which he was a priest. So here you have this rebellious priest writing against the authority of the church, trying to disseminate light in order to, again, remove the bondage that the church had brought upon the people. He gains respect. Again, there are many people looking for change, those in power who long for change. They understand that over the last century or so, as the lands have been given into the hands of the church, it has stripped the nation of its power, of its prosperity, and the nobility are looking again for a way to gain control perhaps for themselves, but even for the betterment of the nation at large. So they see Wycliffe as a friend. They see him as, as posing the, 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 the philosophical and theological grounds to oppose what was going on. And so it gains him many friends in high places. He deals with the, ch the church and state. That's one of his early uh, treaties that he puts forth publicly. He deals with the doctrine of Scripture as well. He deals with the doctrine of the church. And in each one of these, he is addressing it in a way to upset the status quo as far as the Roman Catholic Church is concerned. He's not putting it out there to add simply to what every other priest believed. It wasn't something that you, you, you pick up off the shelf, as it were, and say, this, this is just helpful light adding to the light that the church has already given. No, it was, it was undermining the church, shedding light where there was only darkness and helping people to think differently. He also addressed the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, the Mass, the doctrine of transubstantiation. And this, of course, was the one that got him into the most trouble. This is the heart of the worship of the Roman Catholic Church as it is to this very day. It had been established and recognized at a council in 1215, and so he's, again, about 150 years after that. He is recognizing the darkness and the superstition of it, and as he reads God's Word, he said, this does not, this does not tie in to the teaching of Scripture. This is not what our Lord Jesus taught concerning this sacrament. And so he opposes it. It is that stand that gets him into trouble. His friends begin to drop off. The nobles who appreciated what he was doing begin to, to say, enough is enough. Wycliffe, we can't stand with you if you're going to attack the mass. He loses support. Oxford University, where he was known as, as I've said, the, the foremost teacher, philosopher, theologian of the day, they turn against him. They want no more to do with him. And he eventually retires then to the Midlands, goes, goes back into the countryside where he spends the last three or four years of his life. Bigger things were going on in the nation. Some would have loved to have dealt, have dealt with him in the most severe way possible, but because of political things and changes in government and 
so on and so forth. He was able to enjoy a certain amount of solitude for the last few years of his life before he died in eight, uh, 14, uh, 13, rather, 84. But as I indicated last week, the, these, these last few years were be, to be very productive. And perhaps we might say, I think without any hesitation, his greatest work was accomplished. Which brings us then to the third point, which we'll look at with the time that remains tonight. Wycliffe's contribution, his contribution. And I just have this in, in two points. He published the first English Bible and he prepared many English preachers. He published the first English Bible and he prepared many English preachers. So, the first English Bible. The work that he gave himself to when he went to the countryside was not to put up his feet and enjoy a quiet life. Here's a man who had a vision. This vision was there in seed form early in his life, and now he begins to see it realized. There were enough that were still with him, disciples, young men who they didn't carry any weight or clout politically, but they were loyal to their teacher. They had been enlightened by his instruction. Their lives had been transformed by his instruction in the Word of God, and they were with him. And some of them, some of them, many of them, very much younger than him, but scholars in their own right, they went with him and stood with him. And they began to stand with him in realizing this vision of giving to the English people a Bible in their language. Now, again, language was different then. You're talking Middle English. We would struggle to read anything that would uh, be written at that time. It's not formalized. You don't have dictionaries. You don't have grammars. I mean, these things, these, these, were, these were all understood within Latin, which was part, again, of the, the elitism that existed where people would look down their nose that you would even try to put English into writing. Oh, <laughs> oh, how the world has changed when basically everything is in English today. They would, they would scorn that. It wouldn't make any sense. If you're going to write something, you write it in Latin. It's an understood language. We, we, ha, we know how to spell these words. We have a grammar for it. We get that. But English is, is like the wild west of, of, of language. Still, the, there's, the French is a dominant influence in England at that time, and, and English is only starting to unfold and become an, its own distinct uh, language as it evolves from Old English. Well, that's, that's something of what he's dealing with. But Wycliffe believes, no, the people need this. They need this. And if we give it to them, they will be motivated to become literate. There'll be something for them to read and to understand. And even if there's only one in the community that can read it, he can read it for the benefit of others that are within the hearing. Prior to Wycliffe, the Venerable Bede had translated the Gospel of John into Old English. This is around the 700s or so, a long time before, but never before had there been an entire English Bible. There was a full French Bible by this stage, but never had there been a Bible in English. That's Wycliffe's vision. That is what he wants to see unfold. Now, again, because of the context, this is not a time where you can do research on Google and get clear scans of manuscripts and see the original Greek and look at it and translate. That didn't exist back then. The ability to try and even locate, never mind get access to the Greek, was, was almost unheard of. And so the knowledge of Koine Greek, which is necessary in order to translate from the original Greek scriptures, wasn't really in vogue at that time, as it would become later with Erasmus and with the Reformers. 
So Wycliffe is, is working with what he has. And I'll tell you, it's far better just to work with what you have than to sit back and say, well, it's not perfect, so I'm not going to do anything. So he had the Latin Vulgate. He had the Latin Scriptures. And he used the Latin Scriptures, and he pulled these these young scholars around him to help him as quickly as possible translate from the Latin to English, which is what they did. One historian writes, the first of these translations, the first complete English Bible, appeared in 1384. It was a very stiff and literal translation of the Vulgate. Wycliffe's secretary, John Purvey, produced a second version in 1396 with a preface by Purvey in which he defended the right of lay Christians, just regular believers, to have God's Word in their native tongue. Purvey's translation was much more popular than the 1384 version. Its use of English language was more natural. It had wide circulation in the period between its appearance and the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Now again, remember when we're living. If you're going to translate the Scriptures, you don't have tools for that like you do today. You don't even have the means to print your work when you're done. And so what Wycliffe and those with him were giving themselves to was the laborious task of translating every word in the Old and New Testament into English and then copying by hand every copy that should go out into the world. By hand. This was their work. The next years were filled with applying themselves to this kind of labor. Young men of ability gathering around Wycliffe seeing the vision, understanding the burden, entering into the hope, were there laboriously just copying and copying and copying and copying, revising, reworking things, of course, with you have the, 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 sec the other addition that comes through the influence of Purvey, who functioned as a secretary to Wycliffe for a number of years. This is just going on behind the scenes. And to this day, as far as I understand, there are around 250 copies of Wycliffe translations that have lasted from these late 1300s, early 1400s, the period, by hand. And again, it wasn't the kind of thing that you were open to, to letting everyone know that you had a copy. <laughs> this, this brought great threat. One of the arguments that Purvey actually used was, was going back to Bede and saying, well, well Bede, he gave, he, wrote, he gave the Scriptures in English, although it was only one book, but the, the precedent had been set. It faced tremendous opposition, and yet, as I say, this, this, was, this was something that was to become the, the heart of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, with its huge figures, and all the characters who come to mind, and all their ability and notoriety, ultimately they are nothing without the Scripture. It was their emphasis on the Scripture. It was the recognition that the people need the Scripture that made the difference. And this is what Wycliffe understood. Get the Scripture. Push out the Scripture. So that even literate men 
who may not be scholars, may have not went to, to Oxford and so on to have gained the highest learning, but ordinary men, and we find that later on, I'll make mention of, of one a little later, ordinary men became instruments of disseminating truth because there was a Bible they could read and communicate to their community. So he published the first English Bible. And also he prepared many English preachers. Wycliffe wanted to see people send this out. He wasn't just translating to have it sit on a shelf gathering dust. He had a burden. Get it out. Get it out. This is the answer to the religious corruption. This is the answer to the political upheaval. This is what the nation needs. The Bible. Pushed out and declared by simple men endued with great power. And so that's what he encouraged his young disciples to do. For Wycliffe, the essence of the ordained ministry was the preaching of the Word. It wasn't the celebration of the sacraments, though they have their place. But, but, the, but foundationally, ultimately, the, the, the priority of the ministry of the church is the Lord gave the Word. The Lord gave the Word. This is why the pulpit stands over the table. It's why the pulpit's central in our Protestant churches. It's because we believe that even the sacraments themselves, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, have no material meaning until they are brought together with the Word. It is the Word that matters. For centuries, Rome had become more dark, directing the people saying their Latin Mass, which the vast majority of individuals had no idea what was going on, declaring that the, the bread and the cup was turned into by the words and language of the priest into the literal body and blood of the Son of God. For Wycliffe, the answer was the Word. Get out the Word. It was preaching that resulted in salvation. This is what Paul declares in Romans 10, isn't it? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So they're sent. This is what he's, he's, he's declaring. He's, he's saying this is the need. Men need to be called. Men need to be sent. And what do they do? What are they going to declare? They're, they have beautiful feet because they herald glad tidings in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Wycliffe's followers, sometimes referred to as Wycliffeites, but more commonly regarded as Lollards, that was not the first time that a rowdy sect was given that title. Uh, there's different ideas about what it actually means. There's no consensus that I've ever come across over the years. Some wondering whether it just means mumblers. It had been applied to groups even in the Netherlands before this as well. But it was not something they were afraid of or ashamed of. What they were declaring, what they were perhaps mumbling, was the very Word of God, which was more than could be said for the clergy of the day. So we've already mentioned John Purvey, born in 
born in 1353, so he's around 30-ish or so, 31, 32, whenever Wycliffe dies. What Timothy was to Paul, Purvey was to Wycliffe, a close companion, a personal secretary, an assistant in his literary labors, and Wycliffe's constant attendant until the end of his life. After Wycliffe's death, as we've already indicated, he continued to labor. He continued to work on the translation, obviously effectively, because his, his revised work became even more widespread and appreciated by the people. He's considered a major contributor to the translation that was existing before Tyndale came and gave something better. But Purvey was also a preacher. His sermons were distributed and declared, and in 1390 he was imprisoned. We're told that while he was there, he wrote a commentary, which some believe was, was really the work of Wycliffe, and he was giving the ideas and thoughts and teachings of Wycliffe in uh, what he was writing there. And in 1401, three days after the first martyr was burned at the stake, Purvey all of a sudden realized the price that needed to be paid. And he recanted. He turned back on what he had given himself to for, for decades. He was released, given a vicarage, but eventually his conscience seems to have worked in him, causing him to resign, and then he disappears. In 1421, again, he was in prison for preaching, after which nothing more was heard of him. When you read of the recantation of a man like this, it just brings a sobering sense of that decision that each man or woman has when they're faced with a life and death scenario. Loyalty to Christ or death. I mean, you've watched someone burn for their loyalty and allegiance to Christ. It is impossible for you to try and imagine what that might feel like and how that might play on your mind. There were others as well who recanted like Nicholas of Hereford. Hereford was one of Wycliffe's most learned colleagues and followers. Doctor of Divinity, an able man, stood with Wycliffe in his public trials. From 1380, he worked with him and Purvey in translating the Latin into English. And yet, in 1391, after suffering greatly for the cause, he also recanted. He was rewarded with position and material gain but there's indications from some historians that he may have returned to the faith before he died. Others, and this was evident even before Wycliffe died, others were more concerned about trying to force a revolution. They were more interested in the political influence of Wycliffe and his writings. In 1395, a group of Lollard members of Parliament, so they've infiltrated even the Parliament by this stage, they published a manifesto called the Twelve Conclusions, which denounced the English church's bondage to the papacy, advocated the marriage of the clergy, condemned transubstantiation, prayers for the dead, pilgrimages, and the holding of political office by bishops. There was one particular of that stripe, Sir John Oldcastle, who, again, 
He appreciated Wycliffe, but it was more political. That was his burden. He was a prominent Lollard, member of the English nobility, and he led a failed Lollard rebellion against the authorities in the early 1400s. He was sentenced to death in 1413. He escaped from prison and organized another Lollard conspiracy to kidnap the king in 1414. This was discovered by the king. It failed, and eventually he was caught and executed. But there were preachers, ordinary men, who took up the mantle, and they were the ones doing the most damage. When Henry IV came to the throne in 1399, about 15 years or so after Wycliffe's death, a new law was passed which for the first time made the burning of heretics legal in the land. The king is declaring his intentions. You either stop this or you will die. William Sautry was the first to pay the ultimate price. He was burned to death in 1401. The first, but not the last. Essentially, Sautry was the first of the Protestant martyrs, first of men to to give his life. And that in itself, especially with what was going on with some others, was notable. John Badby was just 30 years of age when he was martyred in 1410. He wasn't a scholar, wasn't a doctor, didn't go to Oxford. He was a tailor, or some suggest perhaps a blacksmith. And yet he was condemned to death. Why? He denied transubstantiation. That this is not what the Bible teaches. The priest has no power to turn that wafer, that cup, into the body and blood of Christ, nor does the Scripture teach it. In instances like Badby, he was given opportunity to spare his life. He was given the, just at the last moments, as they could anticipate, there they are, tied ready to give up their life. The torch is lit and the appeals are being made. Just recant, bad babe. Just recant and we'll let you go. But men like Badby feared not the one who could destroy the body. But the one Jesus said, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Others continued the work, carried on the labor. Not just in England, mind you, even farther afield, they took on the missionary vision. They went, though it may not seem so far in our context, in which you can drive from one end of England to the, the top of Scotland in a day, it seemed far for them. John Resby was an English lollard, a priest. But he, he didn't want to keep it just to England. He wanted to take it as far as he could. He went to Scotland. And he was executed by burning for heresy in Perth, Scotland in 1407 or 1408. Again, these kind of people, these, these events paved the way. They gave courage to the, the Patrick Hamiltons who came a century or so later. They gave courage to those who 
who also would love not their lives even unto death during the Protestant Reformation. And it wasn't just men alone. There were women like Joan Botton, who was martyred much later on April 28, 1494. And so these lollards, these Wycliffeites, continued their work really throughout the 1400s with a quiet influence, never quite able to produce the change so desired and prayed for. But when the political efforts failed, when the attempts at revolution came to nothing, when those who were in it really just for vain ends faded away, there was this quiet, persistent, ongoing proclamation of the truth that, as I say, was still there when the Protestant Reformation finally began in England a century or so later. The work would be a quiet, faithful work. It would be sowing seeds awaiting a later harvest. It would be those who would stay faithful even though they might never see the day when the full harvest would come. And all they could never imagine what would unfold in England some hundred years or so later. They could never have imagined it. Oh, they could have imagined Tyndale. That they could well imagine. Here again is another one. One who steps into the shoes of Wycliffe. One who has many disciples he's encouraging. One who has a vision to give to the people. Again, a clearer translation of the Word of God. One who would pay with the price of his own blood. They would understand that. What they would not understand is that that same man in his last utterances praying that God would open the King of England's eyes, that that very prayer would be answered in the most remarkable fashion. And let it be known, this is not simply talking about a land far away at a time in the distance that means nothing to you. The ramifications of these events in modern America are profound. You don't have America as it is today if this doesn't happen as it happened. It was these men and their diligence and their reluctance to give up, as I say, sowed seeds that transformed the Western world and the world beyond, by and by. Before there was a Tyndale making use of the printing press, there was a Wycliffe. As I've said, he died in 1384, took a massive stroke on December 28th and died on the 31st of December. As I began last week, such was the animosity towards this man a little over 40 years later. They exhume his grave, they dig up his bones, they burn them to dust and they cast the dust of his bones into the river. What can we learn? I say this. And I was quite affected by this thought in my own mind. 
that every time you lift this Bible, it is marked not just by the blood of the head of the church, but by the blood of the members of his body. Mingled with the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice of his people. We sit here in what would to them be inconceivable comfort. And days go by where we don't even lift it. Or someone gets up to preach it and someone might say, well, the sermon, a little long, wasn't everything I was hoping for. God have mercy on us. We need a revived interest in the Word of God. I hope we never go back to such dark days where you can't find a Bible. I hope we never return to days of illiteracy when even if you had a Bible, you wouldn't know what to do with it. But what is it going to take for us to value what we have in our hands? The other thought I had pondering Wycliffe was the importance of investing heavily in the next generation. You know, Wycliffe became somewhat famous in his day. I mean, he was just, I mean, there, there are academics here, but, you know, you live most of your life laboring away in almost obscurity. A few people know you who can say, oh, I remember he taught a class that I was in one time. Very few get the kind of celebrity status that Wycliffe enjoyed for a time in his life. And you could see the appeal to that. You can see how a man who has labored to become specialized in an area of learning and the foremost expert in particular areas might appreciate a little bit of recognition, not just from a few people in a class and a few other nerds who are interested in the same subject, but by an even more broad audience. But when it came to it, the nobility, those in authority, they abandoned Wycliffe when it mattered. They were not prepared to pay the price. In contrast, those 30 years younger than him he had invested his life in instructing, and teaching, pouring his soul into. They at least, though not all of them endured, they at least stood with him through some of his most difficult days. So we've noted some of them would eventually recant. That's what happens sometimes. God raises up 
giants. Men like Wycliffe who can stand before kings and nobles and doesn't care what they're going to say. Simply doesn't care. Those aren't ordinary men. Some of his followers did not have imparted to them the same backbone. That, that Wycliffe couldn't just take from himself and implant into them. Backbone that makes a man prepared to die for the cause of Jesus Christ is a work of the Spirit of God. But there were some, others who were influenced by him, and as we've noted, were prepared to give their lives for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. Invest in the next generation. You won't reap 100% harvest. There's no such thing as 100% success and harvest. There are seeds that don't germinate in every single harvest. But the ones that do, there's no telling what God might do with them. Parents, gather your children around you. Sow seeds, seeds of gospel truth. Never be afraid to weep over their souls in their presence. Never be able to be afraid to appeal to them, son, daughter. Give your life for this. Do not be afraid to look around you at the young generation and take them out regularly with consistency. Every month or two, just checking in on them and, and reading the Word of God when you're with them, pouring in life lessons, the things you've learned, the things you wish you knew. Be vulnerable, be honest, be transparent. Tell them, when I was your age, here's the, the foolish things I did. Here are the things I didn't understand. You don't have to make the same mistakes. The third lesson is the world needs preachers. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of them that published it. I stand before you, beloved. When you read every headline and every talking head and every opinion, Pushing out how you're to view what's going on in your nation and what the answer is. You know the answer. It's not in manifestos. It's not in Republicans gaining control. It's not in, it is preachers. That is the answer. That is the answer for America. Preachers. There's a civil realm. God has given it. I'm all for it. But there's never any change. Let me just restate that. There's seldom any meaningful change without preachers. Preachers. 
Some of them are just ordinary. Man and woman, gossiping the gospel. They know whom they have believed. And they're persuaded. They're convinced of these truths. And so they'll teach them to their children. They'll instruct them even at, in the face of threat and all the social decadence of our day. But there is a need for preachers. The Lord teaches us this, does he not? Pray ye the Lord of the harvest. Send forth laborers into the harvest. America needs preachers. These preachers, men who are filled with the Spirit of God, men who don't care what people think, they're governed by this one compelling, driving understanding. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Men who are gripped with a sense of the love of God. So they're not just going out there declaring truth. They love. They weep over souls. They have more interest in other people's lives than those individuals have in themselves. They see a world all surrounded by people giving themselves to spiritual suicide and they know the gospel is the answer. They give it out. The world needs preachers. I pray, I pray for more. Not just the numbers. True men of heart and zeal. Who know their place. Not everyone's called to be the pastor. Not everyone's called to be in a church in that sense. But knowing that burden to preach and declare the gospel and following through on it. The final thought I had was play the long game. Play the long game. We're all so desperate for quick fixes to the problems, aren't we? This is what Sir John Oldcastle and others like him are so desperate. They want it to fix the problems and they're willing to revolt and start a rebellion. And generally all that happens in those circumstances is that people die for no good reason. Play the long game. Christian, get involved in something. As meaningless as it appears to be, as small and insignificant your contributions may be determined to be by your analysis, get involved in something. Be doing something that you can say, this is what I am doing for my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm doing this. And it's not great. and No one's going to write about it. But this is what I'm doing. This is my skill set. Here's my contribution. Each week I go and do this. Or whatever it may be. It's just that frequent 
regular, steady labor that has attached to it tremendous promise. Galatians 6, 9, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Find something, Christian. Find something. There is not. We cannot come to this conclusion that members of the body of Christ are still on this earth breathing and Christ has no purpose for them. Why not take you to glory if that be his ultimate will and purpose? You're still here. Find something to do. I serve the church. I strengthen the church in my contributions here. I reach the world. I evangelize. I assist in this ministry. I'm involved. I'm there. I'm there. You turn up. You keep turning up. We shall reap if we faint not. The whole hope of the gospel is crystallized in the resurrection, isn't it? The argument of 1 Corinthians 15 is that if Christ be not risen, you're yet in your sins. And you are of all men most miserable. The resurrection of Christ is, is the heartbeat of the believer. It is knowing that this, this God took on flesh, faced death, and the third day rose again as the scriptures prophesied. And we enter into that hope. And we say that he has gone before, the forerunner into the great enemy, and he has conquered, as we said this morning. And that becomes the theological foundation to live. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 ends as it does. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The resurrection believed has consequences. It has a therefore. Because he lived, because he died, because he rose again, I labor every day for him. I'm laboring, laboring in his name for his glory, and it is not in vain. Oh, so much of your life is going, you're going to realize it was all vain. It was just a waste of time. You're just going to see it. You're going to look back on it. What was I doing? What was I doing? Jesus in his resurrection, the right response to that is a waste of my life. Is that the conclusion? Paul says no. No, the resurrection properly understood. And this is where we have to start asking ourselves, do I even believe this? I mean, do I really believe it? The proper response to the resurrection is being steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Oh, church, let's awake. Let's awake. Let's awaken to the need. Let us, let us, let us grasp 
something of what it is we can contribute. Oh, I can't do a lot anymore, preacher, but I can turn up on a Wednesday night and I can pray. Then do so, dear saint. Please come, enter in. Let us hear your prayers, your intercession before the living God. Oh, we need another reformation. Not a revolution, a reformation. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company that published it. Some did so even to the great cost. Some of them were burned by the very hand of their own family members by force. Horrific. But their love for Christ enabled them to see the victory of what they were doing. This is not to be pitied. This is a moment of honor and glory. May we see the same. Let's bow together in prayer. As we're bowed before the Lord, I'm concerned there may be some here that are really properly evaluated. You're in a backslidden condition. Maybe the Lord has stirred in your own soul. Maybe He has worked this very night. If He has done so, act on it. Respond in prayer. Get alone with your God. Get to where you need to be. Return thy backsliding Israel. See the open invitation of Christ to receive you. To wash you afresh. And to endure you with power from on high. Can he fill you? Yes. Oh, yes, indeed he can. Seek him for it. And surrender every rival. God bless what we've considered tonight to our hearts. Help us to respond in a way that honors thee We bless thee for a bleeding lamb who suffered in our place. Oh, may we be moved to live and to die for him. May we count all things dung that we may win Christ and be found in him. Lord, we ask should there be any here still in a condition of unbelief or some who may be walking afar off, work by thy Spirit. Begin the reforming work in this place tonight. 
with a little reviving. Even this preacher, revive me, O God. Thou knowest I need it. Bless our conversation, our fellowship, and empower us to live in the victory of the cross and the resurrection this week. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the portion of all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.